1: Exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of
2: Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts.
3: It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting
2: like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more.
3: Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff.
2: Grown Up Stuff.
4: Food 360 with Mark Murphy is a production of iHeart Radio
3: really what determines whether you're making good ice cream or not like in most food is what the ingredients are that are going into the machine
2: we're as much of a bakery as we are an ice cream factory
0: you're walking around rome and you get some of that great gelato and a little cup with a spoon it's not overly frozen and i think that palatability is really the key Welcome to Food 360, the podcast that serves up some
4: serious food for thought. I'm your host, Mark Murphy. Some of you may know me as a chef and a New York restaurateur. Today, you're in for a treat. We're going to talk all about ice cream. That was Brian Smith, Jackie Cuscuna, and Scott Cohn, you heard at the start of the show. All of my guests today can speak with authority on the magical world of professional ice cream making. I first spoke to Brian Smith and Jackie Cuscuna, owners of one of New York's most popular ice cream spots, Ample Hills Creamery. Making ice cream was always just a fun hobby for the couple, but it wasn't until 2010 when Brian faced some work struggles that he decided to chase after his dream of opening up an ice cream shop. Just four days after they opened their doors to the first brick-and-mortar store, Brian and Jackie ran out of all 130 gallons of ice cream and were forced to close for nine days. Since then, Ample Hills popularity has only grown. It's been rated Zagat's number one ice cream in New York City, named the best ice cream in America by the Food Network, and has been on Oprah's coveted list of favorite things. Well, Brian and Jackie, thank you very much for joining me here today. Thank you. Thanks. So let's hear how Ample Hills began. Jackie, you were a school teacher, and Brian, you were producing audiobooks
3: and writing monster movies. Yeah, really I was the one obsessed with ice cream. My palate never really started expanding after the age of seven. And so ice cream was just this thing that I was in love with from childhood and would make ice cream and found myself making ice cream as a creative outlet from my day job, which was a creative outlet because I was a screenwriter. So that started to tell me that maybe something was <laughs> was wrong with the screenwriting. And I'm honestly, I make better ice cream than I wrote screenplays. Oh, well,
4: there you go. You went with the positive. That's oh, good. So, yeah. But- what was the setup like in the apartment? So you're teaching. You come yeah. home. The kitchen's full of ice cream when you get home.
2: Yes, he would make ice cream flavors and like kind of ridiculous ones where I would taste them and say, uh, "Absolutely not!" Like he did a, a yuho flavor. Do you remember that oh, one?
3: Yuho um, and Kit Kat. Yeah, that, that was, was good with M
2: and M's. Yeah, and Tootsie Rolls. And Tootsie Rolls. That
3: was oh, good.
2: That was horrible. It,
3: it didn't make the menu, I guess.
2: We started actually with using a hand cranked ice cream maker up in the Adirondacks in a cabin in the woods because okay. every. August my family would go up to the Adirondacks in the same cabin community for like I think it's been over 40 years now.
3: And I've wow. been going for 20 years, and so the way in to her parents was, yeah, you know, was to food. bring my ice cream maker. And it really was as idyllic as it sounds. We'd sit on the porch, and we'd crank ice cream, and as we started to get the notion, hey, maybe we should turn this into a business, then we would gather people around, have them try the ice cream, test it out. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of that kind of trial and error. And what's the secret to making good ice cream at home?
2: Oh, what is the secret, Brian? Not Tootsie Rolls, I'll <laughs> tell you that. No. <laughs>
3: One secret is the machine that you're using. And so as messy as it is, a hand-cranked ice cream maker, and this is a little technical, but it actually makes ice cream faster than uh, one of the newfangled ones that has a compressor that you plug into the wall. And the reason for that is that that compressor can't drop the temperature of your liquid ice cream mix and turn it into a solid as quickly as the combination of ice and rock salt. There's something chemical that happens with the rock salt and the ice that lowers that freezing point really quickly. And the faster you freeze ice cream, the smaller the ice crystals are in the ice cream, and therefore the smoother and creamier the ice cream is. Wow. So... Even though it's messier and it's been around for 150 years, the hand-cranked ice cream maker is the way to go. Plus, it's just more fun.
4: I used to make this ice cream when I worked in the pastry department in a one-star Michelin restaurant in Paris, and we used to turn mm. our ice creams before service for lunch and before service for dinner so they were at the optimal temperature. Mm. And we used this old machine that used to have antifreeze on the outside. Oh, wow. <laughs> have you ever seen one of those? No, no. no. And I had this big
3: stick. I had to stick in there mm-hmm. to pull it out. It was a real pain in the yeah, butt. Yeah, 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 Same concept. I don't think they use the antifreeze anymore. At a commercial level now, they make ice cream the same way. It's just a much, much more powerful compressor. You started in 2011. Now you got storage in L.A.,
4: Florida, New Jersey, New York. So do you make everything at each shop or do you make it in one place and ship it? Well,
2: now that we have our factory, we make everything there in Red Hook and then we ship it to all our other shops. But we started with just one on Vanderbilt Avenue in Prospect Heights. And then when that took off, we realized that we had a tiny little kitchen there. I think it was like 175 square feet. Yeah. And then we opened another shop with a bigger kitchen. And then we realized that we had to scale up even more. And
4: you had to back to the bank. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, basically. You were just talking about those new machines that you have. But is there some way or what do you do to make it still feel like it's a local homemade ice cream?
3: Yeah, I think ultimately there's a bit of a myth around what that means to be homemade or to be small batch. The machinery itself doesn't determine the quality of the product. I mean, if anything, the machinery that we're using now is better than the machinery that we were using at the beginning because it churns things faster and smoother and quicker. Really what determines whether you're making good ice cream or not, like in most food, is what the ingredients are that are going into the machine. You know, the reason that mass-produced gets a bad name is that most times when people get up to mass produce they cut all the costs, they get poor ingredients, and they shove it down into the pipe. But as we've gotten bigger, we can gain some efficiencies by buying pallets of sugar at a time, but we're not buying... Worse sugar. We're not right. buying worse cream. We're putting the same products into the machinery, so we're getting the same product. So you're that, keeping it, keeping it yeah. real. And as we as also as well. we make everything from scratch. Yeah, too, we make also every, the bakery part.
2: That's right. I mean, we're as much of a bakery as we are an ice cream factory. Oh, wow. So we bake all of our mixins, our ooey gooey, our uh, baked, unbaked cookies, everything in house, which is very different because there aren't that many ice cream companies that. A have as many mix-ins I think as we do we're not called ample for nothing and then B just that does it themselves you can buy a lot of those pre-made mix-ins from companies that right. sell them to ice cream companies like right? Kit Kats and things like I, that, exactly that you gotta keep them away from exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, although we're not opposed to Kit Kats okay <laughs> they have a yeah. place just not in you ice cream so
4: let's talk about marketing I know you've done certain like limited editions for certain events like the royal wedding or the presidential elections and then you also do things with with Marvel and with Disney. I heard you
3: did a Star Wars ice cream? We really love to find ways to tell actual narrative stories with ice cream. And And clearly it comes from some of my background of trying to write screenplays and write movies. And so we've looked for whether it's things that are licensed material like Star Wars. We did Mickey Mouse. We're working on Marvel right now. We're telling our own stories, our own versions of those things through ice cream flavors. What's the story and how can we turn it into an ice cream flavor?
4: So let's say the history of ice cream. I was reading a little bit about it. And I guess, you know, ice cream was really for rich people because it was expensive to freeze things. Do you know much about how it became so central to American life?
3: Ice cream as an American concept really starts to happen for public consumption around the turn of the century of the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904. The advent of the waffle cone or the ice cream cone. Right. And ice cream then became a much more popular pedestrian enterprise as opposed to the, the product of the wealthy. And a lot of that had to do with the machinery that could then make it and refrigeration and that sort of thing. I mean, the really interesting thing around prohibition, that really was the advent of ice cream soda fountains. Oh, because the
4: bars all had to close down. The
3: bars closed down, (laughs) exactly. And so uh, the American populace flooded to soda fountains uh, and getting phosphates and ice cream and the soda parlor. That kind of concept really got a boon from Prohibition. So they were, instead of getting uh, alcohol high, they were getting a sugar high. Exactly.
4: There you go. The Mm -hmm. Americans had to get high somehow. (laughs) (laughs) We still do. And how do you come up with new flavors?
2: I think the storytelling is probably the biggest biggest part. Sometimes it's led by ingredients. Sometimes we have contests online where we ask people to create their own flavors Mm -hmm. uh, and name them.
3: The, The key for us is to make flavors that are playful and whimsical. We have a very artisanal product. We make everything from scratch but we're not a fancy ice cream shop. We're not making goat cheese and miso Mm -mm. ice cream or saffron ice cream. We're making ice cream aimed at kids, and more importantly, kids inside of adults. And so when we think about flavors, we think about things that are gonna trigger that moment of nostalgia. You know, We think of it as little time machines, honestly.
2: That's really what we're aiming for.
4: I've obviously, being a chef and I've made recipes, some that I'm like, okay, this one's gonna kill it. Mm. This is gonna Mm -hmm. be my favorite dish. And it just completely flops.
3: Have you had one of those?
2: Yeah. <laughs> What's that?
3: What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> I said never. She said yes. Yeah. Yes, of course. We have to talk about we, it. Yes. Which one was it? Yes, Come this on. was
2: Brian's brilliant idea. Well, it wasn't the You Who one because we hadn't uh, had a shop. You're yet, already getting,
3: getting the blame. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah.
2: This was once we opened the shop, we had a flavor called the Beer Munchies. Yeah. and So
3: basically, you know how. Um, (laughs) beer and cheddar go together, right? Because you make a fondue. And you know how you then dip apples into that beer cheddar fondue, Mm -hmm. and that really goes together. But nobody ever thought of beer and apple and cheddar ice cream. So basically this was an apple lambic ice cream, so an apple beer flavor of the ice cream. And then we took cheese nips and Cheetos and cheese pretzels and broke them up and tossed them in butter and sugar and baked them and used that as the mix-in so how much of that did you throw out we didn't actually throw it. at the time we were only we were making two tubs batches, at a time yeah. there okay. was Which one was guy who probably bought about half of it he was upset we never brought <laughs> it back but when you have one shop you can have a failure like the beer munchies yeah. now if we had a failure yeah. like the beer munchies it would cost us a little more because we'd have to make a lot more tubs right. that's true and
4: another question because this also happens a flavor you've came up with it or people you're working with and you're both like I don't think this is going to work and it totally blew you away like people love it like yeah. you have one
2: of those oh, yeah yeah wow, okay it's called corn to run corn and to run yes corn to run it's a corn ice cream with uh, swirls of blueberry and like a cornmeal crumble and it is so insanely good I guess that might be my favorite flavor actually. Yeah, we Uh-oh.
3: thought that was going to be like a little esoteric, <laughs> a little bit off-brand yeah. off and maybe not so popular, but we have to bring it back this summer because uh, yeah,
1: people we're, have just Yeah, we are been
3: bringing it back. Really been upset about it. That's pretty cool. I haven't tried that one. Oh, I got to get it's
1: out
4: there. It's insane. So what's next for you guys? Is there a new flavor that we should be sitting on the edge of our chair
3: waiting for? Well, we've just launched this collaboration with Marvel, which is super exciting because we're doing Captain America ice cream, Black Panther ice cream and Spider-Man ice cream. And all three of them we actually did original artwork and told these origin stories that wrap around the pine containers it's super cool
4: so you have a really good relationship with marvel obviously
3: yeah i mean the crazy thing is it's kind of a fun story i mean marvel of course owned by disney as is star wars as was mickey mouse that we also did and all of that comes from a, a relationship with bob Iger, the ceo because he ordered ice cream one day just happened to order it online we shipped it to him and maybe what two or three days later he emailed me and just said hey I love your ice cream if there's anything at all I can do to help let me know Bob and so it was just (laughs) one of those things that just dropped out of the universe and I grew up in South Florida I mean we went to Disney all the time as a kid and so I think there was a lot of that baked into the way we thought about storytelling and ice cream and experience the way that Disney does. And so, you know, he's become a mentor and a friend. He's visited the shops and all of those products that we've done have been a direct relationship from that.
4: That's awesome. I love that you guys are cooking something and telling stories. You know, getting together with Marvel and Disney, it's very (laughs) unique. I think that's very cool. Well, Brian and Jackie, thank you so much for being here and talking about ice cream. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: Yeah, this was fun.
4: More on Food 360 right after this quick break.
1: Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.
2: Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts.
3: It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting.
2: Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more.
3: Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't
2: want to miss Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff.
0: Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning.
2: We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like.
0: Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL.
2: Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app.
4: Welcome back to Food 360. Now that we've learned something about ice cream, I thought it would be interesting to hear more about ice cream's Italian cousin, gelato and sorbetto. So I asked my friend Scott Conan to join me. Scott began his food journey when he enrolled in cooking classes at a local community college at age 11. He went on to attend the Culinary Institute of America, and after graduating, he spent a year in Munich, Germany, studying pastry. After returning to New York, Scott gained a following for his modern take on Italian cuisine at a number of restaurants, but he really put his name on the map when he opened L'Impero in 2002. Currently, he owns a number of restaurants around the country as a fellow judge on Chopped and hosts Best Baker in America on Food Network. Scott. I want to welcome you to Arizona, but I can't really welcome you to Arizona because you actually live here now. I do live here now. Yes. We're both here for the uh, Nirvana Food and Wine Festival. Uh, I'm usually in a studio in New York City. This is the first time I'm doing it off site. So I'm very excited about this. So when you started out, you're a little kid and you're like dreaming about what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And you thought
0: cooking. Was that your first thought? So I went to a vocational school in Waterbury, Connecticut. I'm from a small town called Oakville in Connecticut. If you're not sure the way vocational schools work, basically you choose a trade you can choose carpentry or plumbing or electrical fashion design my first choice was plumbing my second choice was culinary arts and my third choice was hairdressing yeah wow i mean look at
4: this head of hair. and you went into cooking because you like
0: the outfit better than the plumbing what's going well on? i couldn't get into the plumbing program because too many people had applied so it was a second choice. So you were turned down from the plumbing and yes. they told
4: you it was because uh my grades weren't room. good enough. Your grades weren't yeah. good enough. You
0: were but, not good enough plumbing, but good <laughs> enough to be a cook. Good enough to be a cook.
4: So you were working and then you went to CIA. And then when you got out, from what I understand, you went to Germany really to learn pastry. I didn't know you were on the pastry path.
0: Well, it wasn't necessarily a hundred percent on the pastry path as much as I wanted a well rounded experience. And say whatever you want about German food. It was a big hotel, the Hotel Bayerschov in Munich. It was a great kind of European experience. Say that again. The what, what hotel? The Hotel Bayerscherhof. Whoa, huh? Yeah. yeah. Oh, not the German. She's kinda Deutsch sprechen. Ah, yeah. I lived there for- <laughs> Yeah, Yes, sehr gut.
4: Meine kleine Blume. <laughs> That's all I got.
0: <laughs> Listen, I had a fun time in Germany, but the real intention I got kind of pushed into the pastry program. And the pastry chef was an amazing pastry chef named Chef Bile. And I had a blast. I mean, I learned things and I did things that have stuck with me throughout my career. So let's talk about the difference between gelato and ice
4: cream. I mean, for for you, I mean, we. and by the way, this is something we're we're pretty intimate with because we see it a lot on Chopped as well. We do. I remember we had an Italian guy come in once and he whipped up a gelato in no time flat. And I was like, what? Can we go look at the tape? Because I didn't even see what he did.
0: I was like, whoa, it was just delicious. But the eggs is really the main thing about it, right? The egg, the cream, and I think the most important aspect is the temperature. You know, you grew up in Rome, right? You're walking around Rome and you get some of that great gelato in a little cup with a spoon. The major differentiator is the texture and also the temperature. Right. It's not overly frozen. And right. I think that palatability is really the key. There's something about I think those pastes that Italians have, right? The pistachio paste, the hazelnut paste. In Torino is obviously known for chocolate. There's something about the genduya there, that hazelnut chocolate oh. combination that just now you get me excited. It's good stuff.
4: When I'm in Rome or like I sit down, I'll have genduia e crema, which is basically cream yes. ice cream, which are the two of them together. It's like a perfect little ballet. Oh my goodness. now let's talk about different ways to eat the ice cream or the gelato in Italy, because yeah. I was just in Sicily. I've been there twice in the past couple of years. And the one thing that I was super interested in was they serve it in bread. They serve it in a little panino. Yeah. It's a brioche dough. Yeah. And they cut it in half and they put the ice cream inside and you eat it like a sandwich. Yeah. I didn't understand what this was all about, but then somebody explained to me, because it's so hot in Sicily, it'll melt. And if it's in the bread, it'll absorb it and you can eat the whole thing. I have had that before, not
0: in Sicily. I started a little wine bar years ago and we would do these little panini with the gelato inside and take ground espresso and just sprinkle it over the top i never had that before but it's so italian just to sprinkle espresso beans right ground over the top of gelato and just eat it like that with a little piece of brioche it's, it's pretty, pretty so exciting. good it's, it's pretty so,
4: exciting so when you're putting dessert menus together and i did notice you have a dessert at one of your places with it's a warm chocolate cake with a burnt orange gelato yes a lot of people Warm chocolate, boom! They go to vanilla ice cream, right? That's right. So for you, pairing the gelatos with the
0: desserts, what is your thought process? About I'm that? a big, I'm a big believer that when you're creating flavors, you want to create layers of flavor. So within that burnt orange gelato, let's say we would start with a vanilla base. And I like the idea of charring or burning something, right? And if you think about the rind of an orange and you think about how that would burn, you think about the oils and the essence and how that's gonna fill up your head as you're tasting it, right? It's not just a flavor as much as it's, it's also a breathe, right? So you breathe that flavor, just like you don't taste vanilla, you breathe vanilla, right. right? So I feel like I always wanna identify that breath of food because it's something that sticks with you afterwards. So I kind of like those things that it's not just the flavor, but it stays with you and it's something to contemplate a little afterwards.
4: Well, they do say, I mean, the smell is also part of your taste. That's right. So you have to incorporate all of the senses, which is really interesting. So let's talk about dessert trends. What are you seeing people asking for now and how are you dealing with that?
0: So I think (laughs) that balance of saltiness is something that we see a lot, right? People adding a lot of salty components on a dish. I mean, that's something that's been happening for years, but I'm starting to see more of it. And also on Chopped, you know, I, I feel like, if you think about the economics of a restaurant, one of the things that I start to contemplate in restaurants is where can you cut and what's going to be the effect of those cuts, right? Nobody opens up a business because it's a welfare state. You want to make money, right? right. We, we all got to make a living. You have two beautiful girls that got to
4: get through a college,
0: right? And I have wife with very expensive taste. Yeah, so, you know, there's there's that. that. Too. <laughs> there's that. <laughs> but I think ultimately the economics of creativity put us in a situation where we can't fail right? Where in the old days, there was a playfulness and a whimsical quality to a lot of food. And I feel like that doesn't exist anymore. We can't put ourselves in that situation. We need to have winners or we need to cut. So the first thing that's going to be cut are, you know, a lot of people just don't order desserts like they used to, right? At least in my restaurants, they don't. So what I've manage to do is try to either get one pastry chef for multiple restaurants or I feel like I'm starting to see in a lot of restaurants is chef driven desserts.
4: So you really have to have everything on the menu. has got to
0: be a home run because you got to sell a hundred percent of that food that you're buying or else. That's right. You want to make as many people happy as possible, right? That's why I think so many restaurants are starting to put, you know, month three, they're like, all right, here comes the burger. Right? The burger's on the menu now because we can't fool around. The
4: demographic of people you have to please are a lot, absolutely. I think if you're thinking about dessert in general, and I'm not sure if they were the first ones to do it, but it was the Mermaid Inn. Do you remember the Mermaid Inn? I Downtown, remember this. So this was like- Love some, this. I read this story and I ran over there to see it. Yes. So they didn't have a dessert menu. Yes. They had a little espresso cup. They put a chocolate budino in there, right? <laughs> And you finished your meal. They dropped this thing in front of you. It was literally three bites of chocolate pudding. Get out. We need this table back because when you think about the economics of a restaurant, dessert comes into play a lot because the ingredients are cheap. It's eggs, flour, sugar. Yeah, yeah, not that expensive. That's right. But then you got vanilla bean, you got chocolate. Things get a little bit more. But when you think about the concept of dessert, if I'm going to get eight bucks for one dessert on a four top and they're going to stay another twenty minutes to nurse this one little thing, like get out. Like I'd
0: rather you not have dessert and get another table ordering a bottle of wine. First of all, pastry chefs are expensive. Pastry chefs also come with a different price tag sometimes, which which is a very high maintenance on occasion, not
4: always. Not always, but now let's not upset all the pastry chefs out there that might be listening, but they must have to reinvent themselves as well because as you said, hire one pastry chef for four restaurants, come up with three or four. That's right. And it's so sad.
0: Do the production out of one kitchen and then we'll allocate those expenses to every single restaurant because it's the only way. I did the math one time in one of the restaurants that I had in Manhattan and I looked at that pastry department and I just said, we are losing money every time somebody orders a dessert. We're losing money by having it here. Mm-hmm. And then to your point, we need to streamline it. So I think what's happening is you get the great restaurants of the world, that Daniel's and the Jean Georges, they're still pushing the card. The Bernardin, Eric has had the best pastry chefs, I think, in this country for years. So has Danielle, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and as well. so is Jean Georges. I mean, you keep- But, you, but by the yeah.
4: way, his desserts are fantastic in his higher end restaurants. I don't know if he really pushes the dessert, but I'm sure that they help with the other restaurants that aren't as expensive. Point. Right, that's a I good think.
0: point. I mean, because you need to, and the Mignardis and the Madeleine and the Petit Fours and the chocolates and all this stuff at the end of the day, it's a tremendous amount of work, right? And what's the return? Because a lot of that stuff is free towards the end of the meal, right? Yeah. It's included. Not, I wouldn't say free. It's included in your experience. In your experience,
4: I've always been of the mind that, first of all, if you're going to have a restaurant and you're going to make your own bread, you better be a very busy restaurant because there's bread makers out there that make bread every day and bread's not that expensive. That's I would right. rather buy really good bread instead of relying on your staff that's going to maybe fluctuate and they don't just make bread. Yeah. People who just make bread make bread and they do it really well. They do it well. And it's turning into also the gelato world or the ice cream world. You've got companies like Laboratorio del Gelato. That's I mean he's doing amazing ice creams and he's getting these great flavors and he's really just concentrating on one thing where in my restaurants if I wanted to have a restaurant where I would have a pastry chef making ice cream or gelato, that's
0: not all they're doing
4: and it's that's really right. expensive. It's almost economically, it's cheaper for me to order it from
0: Laboratorio, pay them the money and then serve their good stuff. Yeah, I mean, a Carpeggiani machine is seventeen, yeah. twenty thousand dollars dollars You gotta sell a lot of ice cream. That's a lot of that. ice cream for your ROI. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's—you know think about it. It's pathetic that we have to think these ways, my friend. Back in the day when we were working for other people, we we'd say, what are you talking about? Every restaurant needs an ice cream machine.
4: <laughs> Absolutely, it's not our money. <laughs> All right. It's that time. I'd like to play a little game at the end of the show. I'm going to ask you a question. You give me the first word that pops in your head. Chocolate or vanilla? Vanilla. Cup or a cone? Cup. Brownie or a blondie? Now that's, we're talking food. Oh, (laughs) I'll take the brownie. Okay. Yeah. Cake or pie? Pudding. Oh, there you go. He tripped me up on that one. I did. Your favorite flavor of gelato.
0: I agree with you on the gianduja. If I'm in Italy, I will have gianduja. I oh. will not necessarily have gianduja in the U.S. if I'm here. So, okay. yeah, I'd probably go for a sorbet. So I know it's a sad and pathetic. Oh, no, no, that's not sad and pathetic. Um, least favorite ice cream? Oh, you know, I, rum raisin. I don't like the texture of the raisins in my ice cream. And what topping on an ice cream? What's your favorite? Toppings. Oh, you know how much I love peanuts. Oh, so I it's, it goes on and on about peanuts i this love guy. i Peanut love butter,
4: peanuts, peanuts, all
0: peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> what dessert reminds you of uh, your childhood remember the straw you don't remember this stuff but the ice cream trucks would come around the neighborhood and there was like a strawberry shortcake ice cream and i saw that and there was another one called the toasted almond bar which was like off the charts it was so awesome 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 that sounds delicious well This is
4: it, buddy. Thank you so much for coming down here to the sanctuary and talking about ice cream. Thank you for
0: inviting me. I appreciate (laughs) it.
4: Well, that's it for today, guys. I hope you had a good time. I want to thank my guests, Brian Smith and Jackie Cuscuna and my friend Scott Conan. See you next week. Food 360 is a production of iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Mark Murphy. A very special thanks to Emily Carpenter, my director of communications, and producers Nikki Itor and Christina Everett. Mixing and music by Anna Stumpf and recording help from Julian Weller and Jacopo Benzo. Thank you to Bethann Macaluso and Kara Weisenstein for handling research. Food 360 is executive produced by Mengesh Hetikador. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.